0: A ago. The Podcast Platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert Today, Mobilizing for War Targets Enemies and Exceptional Legislations with Derek Gregory. Hello, everyone. Today, my guest is uh, Derek Gregory, who is a uh, Peter Wall Distinguished Professor at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, uh, and uh, the author of the forthcoming book, um, Everywhere War. Uh, hello, Derek. Hi. Uh, uh, maybe to start this conversation, could, would you mind telling us a little bit more about this forthcoming book?
1: <laughs> yes. Yes, it's been forthcoming for too long. <laughs> Perhaps we should stop there. But... <laughs> This is in many ways the sequel to The Colonial Present, a book I published 10 years ago, which really looked at the aftermath of 9-11 and the wars fought in the shadows of the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. And I traced the interconnections between military and paramilitary violence in Afghanistan, Palestine and Iraq. And over the last 10 years, I've become more and more interested in what I have come to think of as later modern war. Now, what I mean by that is not that everything changed on 9-11, that the face of war was irreversibly, irredeemably altered, because I think war has always been a moving target. There are all sorts of continuities which stretch right the way back to the First and the Second World War, but there are also a series of changes, some of which were started to be put in place in the Second World War, in Korea, in Vietnam, certainly in the proxy wars fought in the margins of the Cold War, but which I think gathered in intensity after 9-11. So when I talk about later modern war, I'm trying to signal that there are things which are different about war as it emerged, as it's being fought in particular by advanced militaries towards the end of the 20th, beginning of the 21st century. And the Everywhere War is an attempt to explore some of those changes and to show that geography in all its different multiple forms is not simply the expression of military violence. It's not incidental to military violence, but it actually enters deeply into the the nature of military violence itself. Now, for the longest time, people in my original discipline, geography, have known that geography's long history has been bound up in war from almost its earliest days. If you go right back to Strabo, one of the great geographers of the classical age, it turns out that his geography was essentially underlaboring for the business of administering the Roman Empire. And the claims that he advanced were advanced in part with one very clear eye on administrators, consuls and and generals. And you can track right the way through from there into uh, the modern period. And the French geographer Yves Lacoste once said, La géographie, ça sert d'abord à faire la guerre. That geography's primary purpose has always been to wage war. And of course there's a great deal of interest, therefore, in the ways in which geographical knowledge is not just produced within universities, but at multiple other sites like the NSA, the CIA, the Geospatial Intelligence Agency, have actually contributed to the conduct of war. But that's not quite what I mean. <laughs> what interests me, rather, is the way in which the very geography of war, not in any disciplinary sense, um, materially alters its operation and its outcome. So, that one of the issues that interests me is that for war to take place, literally to take place, at least three distinct spaces have to be produced. One is the space of the target, a second is the space of the enemy, and the third is the space of the exception. The space of the target is important because war is about killing, and we don't live in a world of targets so targets actually have to be produced and the whole process of identifying and producing targets is of course in part a technical question so that soon after the end of the second world war the united states air force embarked upon what it called the bombing encyclopedia of the world the idea was to produce a an electronic gazetteer of targets originally in the soviet union but eventually it extended across the entire surface of the world. And that technical process is extraordinarily important because it becomes much easier to bomb letters on a map, coordinates on a grid, pixels on a screen, rather than bombing a city which is full of people, people like you and me. So the production of the space of the target is something which has changed dramatically over time, but it's a a constant preoccupation and condition for war. The space of the enemy is straightforward because clearly by and large you animate your troops but also the public that stands behind them for the fight if you're going to war against people who are not like us. So the object there is essentially a a political and a cultural production in which enemies are caricatured, stereotyped, vilified, so that they become at the limit, not only people who are not like us, but in the case of the rhetoric of people like Bush and Blair during the War on Terror, not really people at all. And then finally, you have to produce the space of the exception, which is a legal space in which, unlike the rest of life, at least normal life most of the time, killing is now legal. Legal. And there's a whole legal armature which is wrapped around later modern war, which excites, well, my attention and my interest. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, one one of the instruments that um, uh, acts within those three uh, those three spaces you just uh, you just uh, made an inventory of uh, is uh, is the drone, and we're going to talk about it uh, today for at least for a while, and also try. Uh, to talk about it in a, with uh, uh, with great cautiousness because it's been it's been a, a technological military tool that's been extremely uh, fetishized and uh, a little bit what I call the, the toy syndrome uh, and um, also has been the object of questions that are not uh, that perpetuate the problem more than, more than actually question it uh we, we we i think i think we still live within our, the impression that uh as we as we are being told as kids uh, there's no stupid questions there's only stupid answers no they <laughs> they are stupid questions and there are there are questions that uh in in the diversion in the decoy that they embody uh uh they they manage to get the problem the statu quo uh perpetuating so i think we we we're gonna go through uh, a few of those questions um I, I suppose the most obvious one is refers to refers to the the recent uh, 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 faint outrage in the in the in the United States of the fact that uh, for the first time in 2013, if I remember correctly, uh, an American citizen had been killed uh, by a drone and and therefore had been had been receive a. Uh, uh, uh an, a, a death a death condemnation without without any due trial. Obviously this is the case for any other target of the drones. Uh but um it's it's it, it seems it seems that there's a, uh, yeah there there seems to be a sum of questions like that that, that mm-hmm. prevents us from asking the real questions, isn't it?
1: Yeah I think that's right. Um The preoccupation with the deaths of Americans runs right the way through the argument over drone warfare. Firstly, because, of course, that's why drones are used in the first place. Drones are used to conduct what the US Air Force calls remote split operations as a way of what the Air Force also calls projecting power without vulnerability. Now, it's a mistake to think that these operations are unmanned, Because, depending on who you listen to, roughly 150 to 160 people are involved in drone operations for any one what's called combat air patrol. So there are people involved in all kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. But the crucial thing is that very, very few of them are in harm's way. Some are because these drones have to be launched, for example, from Afghanistan. So you need what's called a, uh, a forward deployed launch and recovery crew so that the aircraft can take off and it can be landed safely, and of course it needs an extraordinary amount of maintenance when it's on the ground. But the vast majority of people are out of harm's way. So the first thing to say is is that drones are used, not just by the US, uh, but also by Britain um, and by other advanced militaries, precisely to avoid putting boots on the ground and therefore bringing bodies back in bags. And so it's therefore not surprising that secondly, that shades into a um, A vision of this kind of war as peculiarly bodyless, Clean, neat, surgical. These, after all, are supposed to be so-called targeted killings. Mm -hmm. That makes you wonder what an untargeted killing would be. But I suppose what we're thinking of there are the kind of um, much more indiscriminate bombings that took place in Vietnam and Korea Mm -hmm. in the Second World War. Bombings on a huge scale.
0: And the the rhetoric, the rhetoric of targeted assassination or a surgical operation, all this kind of thing, made us think that what 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 the weapon of the drone might be would be like a, a little a little poison dart that would be directed at, at like one body in particular. Oh, yeah. We're we're talking of of, of bombs that uh, englobe a sphere a sphere of uh, explosion that kills uh, everybody that is within this sphere. Uh, in a a radius of uh, something like 100 feet, I suppose, or something like that. Well,
1: it it depends upon the bomb. I mean, people often say, um, Grégoire Chamayou talks about this in Mm. Theory du Drone, too, that, you know, drones are not Dresden. Mm. And of course they're not. Um, But the idea that Dresden is somehow the appropriate moral standard to which we should aspire and against which we should judge ourselves is, I think, quite unthinkable. Um, But you're right. I mean, they do kill large numbers of people. And also, of course, the shadow of that death reaches across communities. So even if two or three people are killed, those two or three people have family, friends, they're part of a community. So there's a whole way of life which is being severed and dislocated. And then the people who live under the shadow of the drones are are living in, in constant fear. But you see, all of that is more or less erased when you start to fixate on drones being used against American citizens as opposed to, let's say, Pakistani citizens or Yemeni citizens. And I think that the, um, uh, the hullabaloo that surrounded the death of uh, Anwar al-Awlaki, which of course I understand, and somebody like Jeremy Scahill writes about this um, in very, very powerful ways, but at the same time what it does is deflect attention away from all of those others in those other places. Um, and I think that some of the um, the critics of drones play into that, because when they start to demand to know the rules which are being followed by the Obama administration when it carries out its targeted killings in Pakistan, in Yemen, in Somalia and elsewhere, of course what they do um, is therefore shift the gaze again back to Washington to demand accountability there rather than to what's happening to those who live under the shadow of the drones. And Madhi Tahir says quite beautifully that when you talk to people who live under the shadow of the drones, they don't want transparency, they don't want accountability, they want the killing to stop. Mm-hmm.
0: And and just to to reflect on on uh, what you were just saying, there uh, we we have very much to imagine how living in a population that's as you say under the shadow of the drone um uh, creates also within the, the within this society a sort of defiance for every other bodies because if you find yourself in a, in a, a close proximity to one of those targeted bodies, you might very well be part of their be part of this uh, targeted assassination. So uh, somehow it also uh, it also makes you wonder when you drive this as an Afghani if you drive on a on a road in, in your car. And you see this other car coming in front of you. It might, it might make you wonder whether
1: this this car is not going to be attacked right now, and you're going to be part of it. Oh, I think that's right. I think what it does is is atomize and dislocate and explode the very social fabric of these mm-hmm. kinds of communities. I mean, the the common line that's used is is guilt by association, uh, so that. Uh, the killing of people is justified because, well, they shouldn't have been there yeah. at that time. And what it does is shift the whole burden onto civilians. I mean, under um, international humanitarian law, it's combatants who are required to identify themselves by wearing uniforms, by displaying signs and insignia, and on and on and on. But what drone warfare does is shift the burden onto the civilians mm-hmm. and say, well, you've got to identify yourself unambiguously as civilians. Now, how can you possibly do that? Remember that in Afghanistan, um, most men, much of the time, would carry a gun. But if that's seen as, a, as, as an offensive marker, then everyone is lost. And you're not supposed to be out at night because that's um, suspicious behaviour. And on and on and on. So that all of the, the ways in which normal everyday life is, is, is conducted start to be um, under threat, under suspicion. And you're quite right. Um, there are all sorts of reports which indicate that people are very reluctant to send their kids to school to go to the market uh, to attend a a, jirga, a a political assembly because by virtue of being together in a group your behavior is is suspicious and so i think it it ruptures what is already an incredibly fragile and precarious mm-hmm. society just by the sheer threat of of attack
0: and and this rhetoric of justification is very much part of those uh uh wrong ways of looking at the problem obviously i mean in that case in a very disingenuous uh, disingenuous way i mean uh, in one of your texts, you were quoting uh, this person Et- Etzioni. Etzioni. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'll, you'll tell us who he is, but he he co- he uh, 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 uh normal civilians uh, with abusive civilians. Like abusive mm-hmm. civilians being people mm-hmm. who uh, refuse to refuse to distinguish themselves from uh, from yeah. uh, lo- geographically speaking. Or we c- we can think as well of, uh, of of some conversation I had I had in Israel with. Uh, some, what you would call liberal Israeli, we would we would tell you that it's normal that there are some civil, Palestinian civilian in Gaza who are being who are being killed with the targeted assassinations because uh, those people and I, the quotes as mm-hmm. those people are using human human uh, human shield and and I mean there's a whole there's a whole uh, just like you said the space of the enemy there there needs to be an imaginary preparation to all those justification that. Allows the fact that everyone know uh, the the dis- disingenuity of it, but al- allows yep. to actually believe believe in it re- yep. religiously.
1: I think I think that's right. I mean, Etienne's writings on drones are, I think, for the most part, nonsense. Uh, the distinction that he makes between normal civilians and abusive civilians, um, I'd much rather substitute a distinction between normal academics and abusive academics. <laughs> um, and I think that what knowledge he has, which I think is largely derived from an outdated shop-worn sociology, um, is put to work to actually abuse all sorts of people. Um, and it's not a short step, rather not a long step, from the kinds of claims he makes to, to you know that familiar claim that, that exercising violence against these people those people is perfectly acceptable because they don't value life like we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a contemptible and outrageous claim. Um, and I, I think that the, the, that as I look back over the last 10 years of of war fought by the United States and uh, Britain and Canada and Israel and, and others, what's happened is a growing awareness, particularly under the sign of counterinsurgency, that... There are these other cultures that need to be understood. Now, I think the way in which this is put forward is often misleading, as though this is somehow novel. War amongst the people um, is what General Rupert Smith called it. But in fact, war for the longest time has been fought amongst the people. That was true in the First World War, the Second World War. It was true of Vietnam. So there's nothing peculiarly 21st century about war amongst the people. What is new, though, is the claim that we need to understand their culture rather than simply demonise it. And so I think the so-called cultural turn that the U.S. military undertook um, uh, under Petraeus and others um, was, of course, welcome. At least it acknowledged that these are people with cultures that uh, at one point in the the U.S. Army field manual on counterinsurgency, there's a sentence which says that um, effectively American ways of doing things... um, Uh, are not universal that that american ideas of what is reasonable and rational are not universal and all of that is is to be welcomed so at least now we know there there are cultures and peoples to be understood Mm -hmm. but at the same time it's virtually all directed towards establishing difference and what gets left out of that equation are the things that we have in common and there's a wonderful blog post by Matthew Iglesias. I mean, I do think that there's a lot to be found in, in blogs uh, as well as books. And Iglesias says effectively and ironically uh, that uh, he's read that Arabs are really strange people. Because if you turn up at their door in the middle of the night with 12 guys in camouflage uniforms and black up faces, kick the door down, rush in, yelling and screaming, drag everyone out of bed, um, hood and shackle, the men and the young boys, and drag them off while you are turning the house upside down, while male soldiers are roughly searching the women and the the kids. And then if you're lucky, their husbands and fathers and sons and brothers are return two months, three months later from where nobody knows, bloodied and bruised. You know, Arabs are such weird people, they get really pissed off. (laughs) And that's really the point, isn't it? That, that this whole notion of producing the enemy so that the enemy is not like us, is indispensable to war. But once you start to see that there are all kinds of ways in which they are like us, then I think the whole equation mm. starts to be transformed. But that's interesting because
0: uh, I remember reading this book, and you might, you might know the author who, whom I forgot, uh, who wrote a book with the titles that I can definitely identify myself with, which is a uh, wi- weaponizing anthropology, um, uh, mm-hmm. ex- explaining how they are actually, um, a sort of anthropology corpse in the U.S. Army mm-hmm. that tries to form, uh, uh, the, the military, uh, uh, personnel to, to, to actually understand, understand the cultures that they are embedded into. And, uh, and obviously with, with every, uh, Every problem that it might uh, that it triggers for the uh, the mm-hmm. anthropologist who wrote this book obviously but um uh what what is this ant-
1: weaponizing weaponized anthropology is well in, in i think context? I think you're talking about david price probably that's right david price um and there's a long history of weaponizing anthropology which he's done so much to to recover, but you see it's not so much about understanding these other cultures uh, that's part of it but it's also very much bound up with um, producing an inventory of them it's a biopolitical project in which what is required is is a detailed anatomy of the population Mm -hmm. so closely shackled to the idea of of weaponizing anthropology um, is the idea for example of biometrics of actually recording the most intimate physical corporeal details of what is after all a subject population and they're reassured that we're only doing this in order to separate you from the bad guys um who we can then go out and 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 kill but of course all of it is purely instrumental it's it's certainly not about dialogue it's certainly not about um primarily understanding it's it's largely about Mm -hmm. inventory it's it's about making occupation it's about making um counterinsurgency operations more efficient and more effective
0: so if i'm being provocative it's uh, i would say that it's 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 not anthropology it's zoology
1: well actually i think that's probably right though again if you look back at the history of anthropology rather like geography you'll find that both disciplines have got yeah. a long history of being wrapped up with colonial power and military violence so again mm-hmm. it, it's not novel what we have got uh, at the beginning of the 21st century are new um technical means of um sharpening those those tools and and even new new concepts
0: um
1: so we've we've been talking
0: about um we've been talking about those three spaces uh, and uh, how they play around uh in in this in these forms of uh of uh, everywhere's war uh but um would like maybe to to talk about space itself and mm-hmm. uh, space as a physical uh, uh, entity, and uh, you've been particularly uh, interested in in writing about Baghdad during uh, since uh, since two thousand three, and how how various uh, techniques of counterinsurgencies have been have been uh, uh, enforced by by the U.S. military within the city itself and having very strong spatial implications. Could you tell us more about it? Hmm. Um.
1: For the longest time uh, since the invasion, it seemed to most observers, including the US military themselves, that the situation was spiralling out of anybody's control, not just their control, but anybody's control. And part of the reason for that, I think, was that in the aftermath of the occupation, an aftermath which had received remarkably little pre-planning, essentially what the United States and its allies did was boost sectarian divides and aggravate and accentuate them. And so it's not really surprising that within a short space of time, those sectarian divides hardened and violence became a way of reinforcing them and establishing, in a sense, a a geography of internal difference. And the... United States Army in particular feared that it was losing control of the city and understandably assumed that if you lose Baghdad, you lose everything. And so with this new cultural turn, what Petraeus and his officers did was seek the kind of inventory that I've been talking about. In other words, that detailed, mappable, anthropological knowledge so that the city could be broken up into different districts with different ethno-sectarian identities and then disperse troops into um, those neighbourhoods. Up to that time, again under the doctrine of force protection, which is what's mobilised par excellence in the drone, um, the US military had remained behind the high walls of so-called forward operating bases. This was a strategy which involved dispersal Moving uh, troops into the neighborhoods and claiming to op- offer uh, protection. Um, now, of course, part and parcel of that and, and the whole process of inventing the population was again to disentangle the good guys from the bad guys. And so, this cultural turn, this new interest in what I suppose is the cultural geography of Baghdad, didn't mean that the killing stopped. Um, and Petraeus is very clear. Um, in the margins of this new counterinsurgency doctrine, that killing continues. That those people who simply can't be won over, whose hearts and minds are not up for grabs, um, will have to be dealt with in some other, essentially, violent way. And there have been all kinds of retrospectives which suggest that this process succeeded. Um, And there's no doubt that for a while, ethno-sectarian violence in Baghdad was falling uh, dramatically uh, but in my own work um, and work by a, a number of other scholars um, what I've tried to suggest is is that the killing started to, to diminish and hardly come to a stop but certainly diminish very largely because in the course of this uh, ethno-sectarian uh, conflict um, the sheer succeeded in expelling the sunni so to put it bluntly there were far fewer people left to kill um that's one part of it the second part of it is 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 that the the lifeblood of the city came to a halt i mean baghdad was maintained in the state of suspended animation in which walls were thrown around neighborhoods uh, there were new checkpoints and so movement around the city became extremely difficult mm-hmm. and so what you did was choke off uh, the lifeblood of the city I mean, what Lefebvre called the, the right to the city was effectively being denied. This was no urban life at all. People were caged inside the districts. They were remarkably um, fearful, or well, not remarkably, understandably fearful of moving uh, outside them because they were at risk from the US military. They were at risk from, from militias um, and, and from others. And so the life of the city came to a stop. And, and paradoxically, it was the life of the city coming to a stop which played a very important part in the killing coming to a stop.
0: Mm-hmm. And I suppose the the, the paradigm example of, of what you're just describing is a sort of uh, embodiment of the state of exception that the green zone was,
1: wasn't it? Well, yes. Um, yes, I mean, I think that, that what... The space of exception does, and it's a, it's a highly mobile, fluid kind of thing. I mean, when you read Agamben, um, he talks about the paradigmatic space being that of the camp, and he talks about um, the connective tissue that at least conceptually, genealogically links, say, Auschwitz to Guantanamo Bay. But I think that's misleading. I think it's wrong to think of, of the space of exception as, as as a kind of fixed, physical site. Mm. Um, these spaces are highly mobile, they they are produced uh, in performance and they are themselves performative. So that if you look at, at Iraq under the U.S. occupation, um, there were multiple green zones, not just the green zone in Baghdad, but the forward operating bases and and others, um, other sites. And then there were multiple red zones. So that the the um, uh, the geography of all of this turns out to be to be fluid and, and and in constant motion. That's exactly, of course, what the what the Israelis did with the. Uh, with the occupied West Bank, where the, the space of exception was constantly mobile, moving in the night, you never knew where you could move and, and, and where you couldn't. People are living in a radical space of indistinction and uncertainty, and there are all kinds of connections between, I think, what the Americans were attempting to do in, in Iraq, and what the Israelis have have done hideously uh, to the to the people of Palestine. But the point about the, the space exception is, is, is that this is a space in which people are knowingly and deliberately exposed to death mm-hmm. and where the act of exposing them is not illegal but far from it is actually facilitated by legal means. Now, you can see how that gets a garment from Auschwitz to Guantanamo because, after all, Guantanamo um, was not a legal black hole. It was the product of an extraordinary amount of, of legal labour in which um, uh, the lawyers for the uh, the Bush administration laboured long into the night to work out where you could possibly put people, that they would be beyond the reach of the US courts. And once they were there, how far could you go to torture them without it becoming legally tortured? There's a great deal of legal work that, that goes on. Um, but again, what I find interesting about, about Agamben is, is that one of the spaces in which uh, people are knowingly exposed to death um, is of course the battle space and there those people who are um, empowered to kill are soldiers now there's a kind of bargain of sorts soldiers are allowed to kill but the price they pay is the risk of being killed in return and that brings you into the whole debate about who's a legitimate combatant and who isn't um but again you can see that it's this, this, this kind of shifting legal terrain in which all kinds of of bodies are being deliberately exposed to death um by those who are a very long way away from the killing fields mm-hmm.
0: so we we've been talking about weaponized anthropology and now weaponized uh, uh legal uh strategies and uh, uh i th- i think we can we can continue along those lines and uh, maybe talk about their... The legal corpse of uh, of uh, this Israeli army, and uh, that are particularly well revealed, I think, in the in the film, uh, the, the law in these parts, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, exp- explaining how uh, uh, somehow the the military is not proceeding within the law. The military is producing the law, and uh, and and acting in this in the the blur of the lines that are that are that are that are. Being probably deliberately uh, mm-hmm. uh, constructed in this legal system, so uh, uh, maybe to to give one example, there there um, uh, there there is a there is a, a legislation that uh, has been uh, pretty much cr- produced by by the the Israeli army to uh, seize to seize the Palestinian land, and um, and it's a, it's a law that that they they. Uh, that they had to create when the Israeli Supreme Court was starting to was starting to give um, uh, to 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 give the right for Palestinians to, to claim to claim back the lands that had been seized because uh, it did not necessarily involve any uh, security uh, reasons as international legislation was stipulating. So uh, in, in, this little, uh, in this group of, of, uh, of uh, officers who, who are part of the legal corps of, uh, of the Sverdi army, they had the idea to go back to, their, to the Ottoman Empire form of law, so a very archaic piece of legislation that would, that would allow any, anyone to cultivate and to, to, to have property of, of a land at a distance of any village, in such a way that you would not hear the rooster from the village. I mean, that shows uh, the archaism of the law, uh, and uh, and be able to cultivate the land uh, as as long as they want, providing that they do not leave the land for more than three years without being cultivated. Uh, in which case they would they would lose the the actual property of the land. So. So the Israeli army has been has been uh, has been seizing uh, uh, expropriating a, a lot of a lot of land based on, on this archaic piece of legislation and, and the Israeli Supreme Court, which is the one that uh, uh, settles uh, the kind of uh, uh, I mean, the, the, those cases of expropriation, have uh, been have been have um, been going with it without, without uh, questioning it. And uh, and maybe that drives us back to uh, our, our friend Raja Shehadeh that we were talking about uh, during the preparation of this podcast. We've been fighting those, uh, those cases for, for two decades now in, at the Israeli Supreme Court. Um, so could you, could you maybe tell us more about those, this uh, weaponized legislation mm. uh, produced by the armies?
1: Yes. I mean, I, it's a good question because the first thing to say is that law... Um, national or international law uh, is very rarely apart from power of violence or in this particular case war. And it's a mistake to think of international law for example as a kind of deus ex machina a neutral arbiter which can be called in to adjudicate in disputes. Um, by and large international law has always followed in arrears. Uh, it's in the van of uh, war itself and there's a remarkable passage somewhere in a book by my friend A.L. Weitzman, I think, where he describes um, an Israeli military lawyer saying, you know, if we look at international humanitarian law, the so-called laws of war, there are these things which are black that we can't do and these things which are white which we can do and there's a vast grey space in between and my job is to turn the grey into white. Mm. So in other words, war is always pushing the envelope of law, not least because, of course, so much of international humanitarian law is customary law. It's not set up by treaty, by negotiation. It actually is vested in, uh, in practice, in case law. And as military technology changes, as our capacities for military violence are transformed, so you'd expect the legal armature to, to change. So that's the first thing. Um, law is deeply implicated in the conduct of war. But secondly, what is new, I think, over the past... Um, 20 years or so, is that lawyers are increasingly involved in military operations. Most militaries describe this as operational law. So that whereas in the past lawyers would be probably a long way from the fighting and they would be involved with disciplinary offences, with people going absent without leave or deserting or drunk on duty or whatever, now increasingly they're being called upon to... Provide advice to commanders about the legality of a particular action in advance of a strike, and they have to take into account, um, in the case of Afghanistan, for example, uh, international humanitarian law, but also the um, uh, the rules of engagement, uh, the tactical directives, and the special instructions. And there's a vast armature which is which is being used now. What's interesting about that is is that I do think the deployment of the law in this way is sincere, and I do think that it's had all kinds of uh, important consequences. Um, But the fact of the matter is that it's also a very powerful, um, legitimating force. And so very often when militaries are criticised for actions, the response is to say, well, we have fulfilled our obligations under under international uh, law what we did was lawful, as though that somehow settles the discussion. Um, and it's exactly the same thing with um, the Israeli uh, so-called Defence Force, that it too claims, well, actually, it claims to be the most ethical army in the world, um, which uh, always beggars belief, but but it also is lawyered up and is determined to say that it has the law on its side. Well, in the case of the Israelis, of course it does, because... Um, Israel, together with its allies, has done everything it can to frustrate attempts by the Palestinians, for example, to appeal to the International Criminal Court, to invoke international law. Um, so it, in that sense, it does have law on its side, um, uh, but in but as the result of, of uh, it seems to be, political abuse. Um, so law has become a very, very powerful weapon of war. Um, But I think we may be at a moment where that's called into question, because after all, in the the wake of the the financial crisis, uh, the bailout of of the banks and programs of austerity, uh, I'm sure you can remember all of the bankers and their spokespeople, including ministers of finance, saying, well, you know, what they did was lawful. It was legal. Um, And yet there was a wonderful groundswell of public opinion saying well it may have been lawful but it doesn't make it right mm-hmm. and what it's suggesting is there's something wrong with the law well exactly the same argument it seems to me can be transferred to the uh, the execution of the administration of military violence simply because what's taking place is uh, is in accordance with with legal precepts legal precepts which as I say are not independent from from uh, from military violence doesn't make it right mm-hmm. And when when I look at the way in which, for example, the U.S. military, which I which I do think is is compared to most other advanced militaries, remarkably transparent, um, they talk about uh, during these drone strikes the prosecution of the target. Uh, they talk about maintaining visual custody, um, and so it's quite clear that the military lawyers that are being deployed there. Um, our defense attorneys only in the sense that they work for the Department of Defense, mm-hmm. not because they're there to, to defend, for example, civilians.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: um, I'm, I'm, not
0: a, I'm not a legal theorist, or uh, and uh, the definition of law I'm about to give may be actually extremely naive, but I, I was under the impression that law was a set of rules and principles that were thought, let's say, abstractly, for future applications, and in that case, we see law being produced simultaneously with actually the 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 uh, the actions that law was supposed to judge. So somehow the law is is being adapted to what it is that it's needed to be done. So uh, that I think that's that's where that's where uh, law become extremely weaponized because because it is it is it is designed exactly
1: for. What's needed at this moment, which is not supposed mm-hmm. to be the essence of the law, I suppose yeah, i mean I, I think that it's that it's always been um, bound up in in practice in what actually happens on the ground, even as it claims to be these these abstract um unassailable general principles so for example if we, if we look at, for example, the history of bombing, there were attempts before the first world war. Um, excuse me, before the Second World War to actually legislate, to prevent bombing from the air or at least to to restrict uh, its targets. They came to nothing. And you would think, if you were really idealistic, that after the horrors of the Second World War, um, the bombed, burned-out cities um, uh, across Europe and Asia that when states came together to establish the geneva conventions one of their major concerns would have been bombing from the air they would return to those pre-war debates but now with a vengeance but of course when you look at, at what uh, the geneva conventions established um it was nothing of the kind i mean there are all kinds of prohibitions for example now on the use of chemical weapons but nothing about bombing um Roosevelt might have been keen on it, but not Eisenhower, for sure. No, absolutely not. But 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 more generally, the the reason that that nothing was done was that those states which had the most experience of doing the bombing, which is to say Britain and the United States, were at the table, and those nations which had the most experience of being bombed, which is to say Germany and Japan, weren't. So, the Geneva Conventions address all kinds of of, of things, but again, in the terms of these. These general principles and some of the specific horrors of war um, are excluded and and off the table. And I think when you track forward, you find again and again and again that that as I say, law has never functioned as a as, as a deus ex machina, and it's always been fashioned out of the debris of military violence. Um, but very often not, most often not, in ways which are designed to forestall future military violence. And there was there was there was a, a, an extraordinary moment when. Um, uh, in the wake of the First World War, Britain demanded that submarines be banned because this was just not a fair way of of, of conducting war. You couldn't see the things and their consequence for shipping was, of course, um, catastrophic. Um, now, why did Britain advance that? Well, obviously not for um, lofty philosophical reasons um not because it was seized with a with a new um ethical fervor but because it didn't have any or at least it didn't have as many as the Germans um well it came to nothing and exactly the same arguments are going to be used about about drones i suppose um with about as much effect so there are two issues going on there incidentally one is as i say the 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 the, the entanglement of law in 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 power and in violence but the other is is, is the mistake to focus and fetishize on an objects the submarine or the drone rather than the larger apparatus of violence in which they're they're mobilized hmm. um,
0: I, I didn't think uh, I was going to to uh, structure the conversation this way but uh, as it happens uh, I will I will continue and use your your very broad knowledge on uh, the way war unfolds itself to, to talk about a, a, a third discipline that um, that is being mobilized uh, uh, very often for uh, the causes of war, and in that case, uh, uh, it's the discipline of medicine and and how uh, mm-hmm. how in that specific case, it's even in in, in absolute contradiction with the very essence of the discipline. So it's it's, it's particularly interesting. And uh, you, you've been you've been writing a lot about uh, the, the Foucauldian concept of biopolitics to talk uh, to talk about how the way war are actually uh, uh, uh occurring uh, especially in Iraq and uh, and I was one I was wondering what 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 are what is the current status of medicine within within those, those <laughs> new and, and how how's there being, how a, medi- a medical knowledge a medical expertise can uh, often be uh, uh, once again militarized or weaponized I mean obviously, yes yeah. obviously the must. The most horrifying example being being the, the medicine the experience experiments that were uh, developed in the Holocaust camps, but at at, at uh, maybe uh, lesser degrees but still
1: very much militarized I think uh, we we have other examples currently uh, mm. unfolding themselves so. well, I think there are two interconnected issues here really one is something we've touched on already, which is the way in which the language of met- medicine is used to provide a rhetoric for war. You talked about surgical strikes, but one of the most common metaphors being used uh, during counterinsurgency and counterterrorism operations in Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere is 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 that of a cancer, a cancer or hemorrhages. Yeah. as well. Yeah. But the the point about the cancer analogy, of course, is 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 what it brings in its wake. Um, so there was an extraordinary essay published uh, by two senior U.S. Army officers, which talked about curing Afghanistan and essentially said that the application of US-led military violence was a form of chemotherapy. Now, of course, chemotherapy works by killing, by killing cells. Um, but you're killing in order that the body may live, right? And so there's a, there's a, there are a host of ways in which these, these um, m- medical metaphors are mobilized to imply that war is somehow therapeutic um, that it's not simply as as Mark Neoclius says, a, a policing operation designed to maintain order, but it's a, it's it's uh, it's almost a kind of a matter of public hygiene, of public health. Um, it's a it's an intrinsically uh, therapeutic exercise. But the other side of that mm-hmm. um, is 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 a much more material one. So the work that I've started to do now is on the ways in which. Um, people who need medical treatment in a war zone, both combatants and civilians, are evacuated and treated. Now, some of these people are, of course, many of them, perhaps even most of them, are suffering wounds of all kinds, some physical, some no doubt psychological. And there's a whole question of of evacuation, of casualty care, both by uh, militaries and also by civilian humanitarian agencies. Then, of course, there are all those people who, well, people get sick in a war. So if you look at Syria today, of course there are people suffering hideous injuries from the violence on both sides. Um, They're suffering those injuries in a war zone where hospitals and doctors have become targets. And so in order to seek medical care, they have to make a precarious journey across the borders into uh, Lebanon or into Jordan. But at the same time, there are people in Syria who continue to uh, suffer from cancer, from uh, heart disease, and they too need medical care and treatment. So they have to make similarly precarious journeys. And it's part of my uh, study of the way in which in different campaigns, these medical military machines are mobilized to provide some sort of care. Um I've started to think about the ways in which the military and the civilian start to blur. Now, part of that is is, is a kind of political project because I, uh, over the past ten years, um, I've become increasingly impatient with those uh, who think that the left cares for their civilians and the right cares for our soldiers. It's a kind of lazy politics. Um, that I really have virtually no time for at all. So I'm interested in the ways in which the, the lines are blurred between um, the military and the civilian. Who cares for all of these people uh, in, a, in a war zone? And that seems to me to be a, uh, a really quite fundamental question. That as I look at the blurring of those lines, what I've come to realise is is that one of the most um, uh, vital connections, actually, between military medicine and civilian medicine is in trauma care. So when we look at those who are injured in, in war zones, uh, military medicine is extremely well advanced. Um, there are all kinds of differences between militaries in how they evacuate casualties, military and civilian. But. Uh, medical care provided by militaries for um, patients suffering advanced trauma i mean injuries which you know 10 years ago 20 years ago would have killed them outright is quite extraordinary and many of those advances in, in in military care have fed back into civilian trauma care rather than the other way around in terms of evacuation in terms of getting forward medical treatment to the the point of injury um, and of course the surgical techniques that are that are being deployed um, now, that shouldn't surprise us in a way because we know much more generally that there are all kinds of ways in which what happens in the military spills over into civilian life. Now, much of that, I freely concede, is is sinister and, and horrible. I mean, uh, daily life is far more heavily militarized than than, than we might imagine. But Nick Turs shows in his book The Complex that there are all kinds of ways in which Things that we take for granted in our day to day lives, not least technologies um, like the internet. I mean, have their origins in the military and in military violence. And you find those interconnections between the military and the civilian just as much in the process of caring as you do in the process of killing. Hmm.
0: And I suppose that brings that brings us back to the to the drone and the instrumentalization of medical reports, according to which uh, the operators of the drones in Nevada would would would. Would be traumatized just as much as if they were on field, and uh, all their, all this sort of, uh, of uh, once again, uh, propaganda that, uh, uh, yeah, and again this simplification from the army itself that it's it's all about like two guys in a in a in a in a computer room in, in Nevada and one drone on site, and that's all end of story. Yeah,
1: I mean the, there are those claims, and and um, I think the jury is out about how prevalent. Mm-hmm. PTSD is, for example, among those who fly drones compared to those who are actually in harm's way and see things not mediated by a screen, but um, not just see, but hear and smell things happening, quite literally, in the, in the flesh. Um, but I've been working on a, an army investigation of a drone strike in uh, Uruzgan in Afghanistan. And one of the conclusions reached by the uh, investigating officer, you no. Know, you have to bear in mind he's an army officer, but nonetheless. He says that, contrary to those who think that one of the things to be said about drones is that you're so far removed from the scene of conflict that you're capable of making much more rational uh, decisions. You're much less likely to react in the heat of the moment because of the distance. Um, what this report says is is that, in fact, um, the most dispassionate voice, the coolest the calmest the most reasoned voice was the ground force commander in the field in harm's way and those who were most prone for who were leaning forward into uh in in into violent action were precisely the crew of the the drone back in in nevada out of harm's way
0: well direct thank you so much for taking the time this afternoon to talk with me and uh I- we'll we'll be very much looking forward to to read uh everywhere's everywhere's war so uh me too (laughs) (laughs) all right well good luck with that Thanks, you thank you